0: Willkommen in Berlin. Hello and welcome to Berlin. I'm Marion Jones and this is City Breaks Berlin episode 17, Writers on Berlin. As in some of the previous series, I've had a trawl through lots of books and quotations by people who've been to Berlin and then written about it, picked out the ones I liked the best and put together a little selection for you to enjoy. I'm sticking to factual writing here, because there's a whole second episode coming next time for fiction novels set in Berlin, that sort of thing. So I thought we might start with a few short quotations, such as this one written by Catherine Wilmot in her book, published in 1803, entitled An Irish Peer on the Continent. Quote, The entrance to Berlin is perfectly magnificent. The new gate is like a grand triumphal arch, ornamented on the top by four bronze colossal horses, held in from bounding into the square beneath. The streets are extremely wide and delightfully planted, with acacia trees and a variety of others. It must be noted that when the writer Jerome K. Jerome went to Berlin in 1900 or so, he wasn't quite so keen on the wide streets. Quote, Berlin is a disappointing town, its centre overcrowded, its outlying parts lifeless. It's one famous street, Unter den Linden, an attempt to combine Oxford Street with the Champs-Elysees, singularly unimposing, being much too wide for its size. Well, I have to say, I'm with Catherine on that one. I'm quite a fan of Unter den Linden. I'm going to turn next to the travel writer, Rick Steves, who sums up Berlin as follows. Berlin is a city of leafy boulevards, grand neoclassical buildings, world-class art, glitzy shopping arcades, and funky graffitied neighbourhoods, with gourmet street food. It's big and bombastic, the showcase city of kings and kaisers, of the Führer and 21st century commerce. So, a great summary of all the many different things that go to make up modern Berlin. And, of course, you don't have to hunt very far through your quotation books to find people talking about the importance of Berlin politically, especially during the 20th century, the Cold War and all that. Here is one Nikita Khrushchev, first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union between 1953 and 64, so right at the height of the Cold War, underlining the strategic importance of Berlin. Quote, Berlin is the testicle of the West. When I want the West to scream, I squeeze on Berlin. And here's the American president, John F. Kennedy, talking round about the same time, but putting his emphasis very much somewhere else on the effect of the Berlin Wall and the division of Europe on the people who had to live within it. There are many people in the world who really don't understand, or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. And then, 20-something years later, another American president, Ronald Reagan, pleading, Mr Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And sticking with the theme of the Berlin Wall, here's another rather less likely person talking about it too. He is Clarence Clemens, saxophone player with Bruce Springsteen, who toured Germany, including Berlin, where they played Behind the Iron Curtain, about which he wrote, We sang Born in the USA, and I thought, we're all going to die. This man is going to get us all killed. But then you saw all these kids with American flags and German flags together, singing the song, and it was wow like, we shall overcome. So he really captured that pent-up energy which was to lead, just a year or two after that, to the coming down of the Berlin Wall. And on that topic, here's David Cameron, former British Prime Minister, quote, after the Berlin Wall came down, I visited that city, and I will never forget it. The abandoned checkpoints, the sense of excitement about the future, the knowledge that a great continent was coming together, healing those wounds of our history is the central story of the European Union. You might pause to reflect that David Cameron was in fact the British Prime Minister who organised the referendum which took us out of Europe. But that's another story. What about post-Berlin Wall Berlin then? David Bowie called it the greatest cultural extravaganza that one could imagine. And he knew because he lived there for quite a few years. Loved it very much and always said he found it an inspiring place to work. Lots of other people thought the same. Here, for example, is an American political scientist called Ian Bremmer. Berlin is a very edgy place, a very cosmopolitan place. It's a place where completely different ideas and cultures come together and clash in a very warm way, in a very warm-hearted way. And just before I move on to longer extracts, I'll give the last word to the blurb I found on the back of the Lonely Planet Guide. Berlin's combo of glamour and grit will mesmerise those keen to explore its vibrant culture, cutting-edge architecture, fabulous food, intense parties, and tangible history. And here then, a slightly longer extract, on a very much-talked-about typical Berlin topic, the pub, or better known in German as Die Kneipe. The writer Rolf Schneider wrote a book called Berlin, Ach Berlin, and he devoted a whole section to The Kneipe started by explaining how many there had been. There used to be one on every corner, apparently. As a local saying puts it, he writes, the typical Berlin street crossing has four corners and five corner pubs. And they all had a certain atmosphere, quite small, quite unassuming. The bar would be opposite the entrance door, he says. There'd be a sink behind it where the glasses were washed, and, of course, a beer tap, usually with two spigots, one for light beer, one for strong beer. And then, quote, In front of the counter, there are between two and four stand-up tables, with surfaces of pale scrubbed wood, each with an ashtray in the middle, bearing an advertising logo, and a stack of beer coasters. There might also be food. Here's another little extract. A really well-stocked corner kniper has a glass display case to one side of the counter, holding cold fricadellen, the fried balls of ground meat, which are Berlin's equivalent of the meatball. Increasingly less common are the three large open glass containers set on the cabinet or on the counter itself, which contain pickles, pickled eggs, and pickled herring. I think really the gist of it was that this was a place where people, actually largely men, came to enjoy a beer, but there were other options too. Quote If there's enough room, there may also be tables with seating, plus a pinball machine, slot machine, and jukebox. Sometimes there's an additional separate space with card players, a table for the regulars, and a leather-bound menu listing standard dishes, potato salad, goulash, and roast pork. There is an English translation of Berlin Ach Berlin available, although it doesn't seem to be very easily available. I'm not sure you'll be able to find it. But the next four books were all originally published in English, all relatively recently, and are therefore very findable. And each one I've read in its entirety very much enjoyed and can thoroughly recommend. So I'm going to talk through them, each with a short extract or two to give the flavour. Starting then with a book called The House by the Lake by Thomas Harding, published in 2015, which is, as the title implies, a book about a house. One which is on Lake Glienicke, just outside Berlin. And it's the story of the house and all the people who've lived in it from the end of the 19th century up until the year 2000. And they include the author's grandmother, Elsie, which is how he came across the idea of researching it. And as he researched it, it turned out to be really a history of Germany through the 20th century and the effects that the turbulent political changes in that period had on ordinary people, the people who just happened to be living in this one house. We hear, for example, about the Alexander family who bought the house in the 1920s. Dr. Alfred Alexander was a Jewish doctor. And so their story soon becomes one of what to do as a Jew in Berlin through the 1930s. There's the story then during wartime of Will Meisel, who moved into the house when the Alexanders left. He was a music publisher doing his best to keep his business going during the war. And then during the 1950s comes the story of what happened to this property, which found itself in East Germany, very close to the border with the West, but nevertheless behind the wall and it's explained how Wolfgang Kühne, who lived there during that period, became a Stasi And then, of course, eventually we get the fall of the wall, and what that did to the area, and what happened to the house afterwards. Here's a little more detail as expressed in the blurb to the book. In 2013, Thomas Harding returned to his grandmother's house on the outskirts of Berlin, which she had been forced to leave when the Nazis swept to power. What was once her sole place, now stood empty and derelict. A concrete footpath cut through the garden, marking where the Berlin Wall had stood for nearly three decades. In a bid to save the house from demolition, Thomas began to unearth the history of the five families who had lived there. A nobleman farmer, a prosperous Jewish family, a renowned Nazi composer, a widow and her children, and a Stasi informant. Discovering stories of domestic joy and contentment, of terrible grief and tragedy, and of a hatred handed down through the generations, a history of 20th century Germany and the story of a nation emerge. And the extract I've chosen comes from a description of the 4th of June 1933, when the Alexander family gathered at Berlin's Temple synagogue for the wedding of their daughter Bella to Harold. 400 people were there, on what of course history will tell us would have been one of the last occasions when a Jewish family could gather so publicly. To celebrate anything, Quote, downstairs the men sat in rows of wooden pews. They wore top hats and long tails. Upstairs, in the balcony section, also seated in pews, the women were attired in formal dresses and hats. In front of the ark, the ornamental chamber that contained the Torahs, the bride and groom stood under a chuppah, a cream and blue fabric canopy held up by four wooden posts, which had been garlanded with flowers. The bride was dressed in a stunning ivory bridal gown, her face covered with a veil. The groom was in tails like the other men. Beside them stood the four parents. Harold's family had travelled from London, along with the rabbi Joachim Prince, who officiated over the ceremony. Once the vows had been exchanged, Harold stamped on a glass that had been wrapped in a cloth. With the sound of it breaking, the congregation called out, Mazel Tov. You can't read that without wondering what became of those 400 Jews gathered in Berlin in 1933, the very year that Hitler came to power. And if you read the book, you will in fact discover what did become of the Alexanders and their four adult children. So then, moving on to something completely different, a work of journalism really, an investigative write-up, a book called Stasiland by Anna Funder. I think she's Australian, but she went to Berlin to research the history of the DDR, the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, East Germany. Investigations, interviews, stories of people she met are all written up, and together they make what the blurb refers to as a brilliant account of the passionate search for a brutal history in the process of being lost, forgotten and destroyed. It's full of real people who lived under the regime, including some Ekstasi men and some people known as Mitarbeiter, so those who supported the system worked for it in some way, perhaps without being officially recognised as such. Anna Funde went to museums, to prisons, to ex-Stasi buildings, and the people she met included, for example, Frau Paul, who had been a prisoner at Hohenschönhausen because she'd been caught attempting to flee the DDR, and who told the story of her very sick baby who had to be sent to the West for treatment, and the fact that neither she nor her husband were allowed to go with him, and that eventually both of them ended up in prison. Memorable, too, was her description of the puzzle women, who literally sat piecing together sackfuls of documents which had been ripped up by the Stasi in 1989, in an attempt to hide what had been going on. Here, for example, is an extract about the day when Anna Funde went to an ex-Stasi building where she was allowed to view reel-to-reel film, propaganda which had been made at the time and which was transmitted to the citizens of East Germany. First, she describes the building itself. Linoleum and grey cement, asbestos and prefabricated concrete, and always long, long corridors with all-purpose rims. Behind these doors, anything could be happening. Interrogations, imprisonment, examinations, education, administration, hiding out from nuclear catastrophe, or, in this case, propaganda. Anna Funda sat there and watched the tapes and made notes. And here is her description of a programme which was transmitted in March 1960, so actually just before the war went up, but a programme made in a bid to stop people leaving East Berlin and going to the West. Quote, The titles come on. A mean-looking cartoon eagle, the West German emblem, wearing the red, white and black of fascism, alights onto a television antenna. Then the words come up. The Black Channel. Suddenly, a man in a suit with boxy black glasses fills the screen. He addresses me directly, as if he were sitting here in the room. The Black Channel, my dear ladies and gentlemen, carries filth and sewage. But instead of carrying it to a sewage farm, as it ought, it pours day after day into hundreds of thousands of West German and West Berlin homes. This channel is the channel broadcasting West German television programmes. The Black Channel. And every Monday, at this time, we are going to devote ourselves to, as you might say, a hygiene operation. Next, she describes a tape made in 1965, a news bulletin really, after two more people had been shot, trying to flee over the wall. Dear viewers, you all know why I am here today, returned from my holiday especially to appear before you tonight. Our border guards have, in accordance with their duty, had to shoot at two men. They were breaking the law and seeking to breach our national border. They stopped neither when called nor when warning shots were fired. One of them was fatally wounded. And there follows a good 200 words or more of justification as to why it was right to keep the border secure, as they put it, and how this shooting had in fact really been an act of peace. Quote, Here in the German Democratic Republic, peace has been elevated to a governing principle of the state. It really does make for chilling reading, relentlessly factual, telling it how it was in excruciating detail, but also with Anna Funda's Interpretation as you go along. On this occasion, for example, she wound the tape back to take notes because, quote, I wanted to be able to see exactly how this man turned inhumanity into humanity, these deaths into symbols of salvation. And next, a book called Tunnel 29 by Helena Merriman, published in 2021. The true story of those who dug a tunnel through which 29 people managed to escape from East Berlin to the West. Here's an extract from the book's jacket. It's summer 1962 and Joachim Rudolf, a student, is digging a tunnel under the Berlin Wall. Waiting on the other side in East Berlin, dozens of men, women and children, all willing to risk everything to escape. Tunnel 29 is about what happens when people lose their freedom and how some will do anything to win it back. Again, this is a book full of research, lots of historically accurate detail from reports and eyewitness accounts and interviews. And from it, you can learn lots about everyday life in East Berlin, from the mundane, about shopping and trying to get by, to the terrifying Stasi interrogations. You learn about Joachim Rudolf himself, who masterminded the plan. About how the first attempt went badly wrong when they were betrayed by a Stasi informant. And you meet some of the characters, the people who actually eventually ended up coming through the tunnel to Freedom in the West. Evie, for example, and her little daughter Annette, who was a toddler at the time. And Klaus, who was helping the project because he wanted to rescue his wife, daughter, and the baby son that he'd never yet met. And lots of others, too. And it's also the story of the digging itself. Months and months of risk-taking and hard physical work. Here's a little extract which gives the flavour of that. Hasso and Joachim, and another digger, Joachim Neumann, grab their duffel bags, heavy with drills, screwdrivers, hammers and guns. Ducking down into the tunnel, they start crawling. The wet clay squelches under the weight of their hands and knees as they scrabble under Bernauerstrasse, the death strip and the wall the sounds from the street receding as they crawl further into the east. At the end of the tunnel, they unfold, standing tall in the shaft they've dug out over the past few days, looking up at the ceiling that slopes into the cellar. Banging on it with hammers, the sounds return to them, hard and flat, brick they guess. And here, from much later in the book, is the moment when one of the people trying to escape, Evie, first gets down into the tunnel on the eastern side. Evie's body moves, and she finds herself handing Annette over and begins crawling. The tunnel is smaller than she'd imagined. Her shoulders bash against the sides as she clambers through in the dark, and she gasps as the skin on her knees shreds against the gritty floor. She crawls for minute after minute, willing the tunnel to end, but it keeps going on and on. She breathes fast. Stay calm she hears from the digger behind, the one holding Annette, "'Nothing's going to happen. Keep going.'" And then, a little bit later, waiting at the other end in the western half, are two of the helpers. They're filming everything, they're waiting, nothing seems to happen, but then, "'A white handbag appears, then a hand, an arm, "'then a woman in a dark dress crawls out of the tunnel. covered in mud, Avy's feet are bare. "'She's lost her shoes somewhere in the tunnel.'" It's taken her 12 minutes to crawl through the dirt and the water. She looks up towards the camera, shrinking from the light, then starts climbing the ladder, dress laden with water, hands shaking with exhaustion. She's almost at the top when she hears a loud ringing and she wonders if something's happened in the tunnel, if it's a warning, an alarm. But just as she realises it's coming from her ears, she faints. Klaus, the NBC lighting guy, running forward to catch her. He lowers Evie onto a bench, and she sits there, eyes fixed on the tunnel, as Mimo appears, holding Annette. Evie bundles her child into her arms, rocking her back and forth, nuzzling the nape of her neck. And, as the evening continues, more people manage to get through, 29 in total, and all of it is captured on film. Quote, The camera tracks each of the escapees in their mud-stained, ripped clothes as they walk towards the door the door that leads to West Berlin, the other half of their city that somehow became a different country. As the last person walks through it, they look back and the door closes softly behind them. So, yes, I very much would recommend Tunnel 29 as well. It's a work of historical interest, very much gives you a picture of East Germany. It's also an exciting story. Even though you probably know the ending, it reads at times like a thriller or a spy novel, very good on the risks that these people were taking and the moments at which it so nearly all collapsed, which would have had dreadful repercussions for everyone involved and ultimately, of course, an uplifting book because in the midst of all that control and horror, somebody at least managed to achieve something and 29 East Berliners got what they wanted, a life of freedom in the West. And the last book I've chosen is an autobiography called Red Love by Maxim Leo, subtitled the story of an East German family. And this too takes you through the Germany of the 20th century and the effects of history on the people who lived there. It's written by Max Leo, who's now a journalist. He grew up in East Berlin, and it's really the story of three generations of his family, starting with his grandparents, who lived their adult lives during World War Two. There's one, Gerhard, who was involved in the French resistance during the war, ended up in prison, and then the other one, Werner, who became an old-school DDR believer. Then there are his parents, who he calls by their first names, Wolf and Anne. Wolf was an artist who had to try and make that work within the DDR setting. And the book explains how he gradually took more risks during the 1980s, struggling against the constraints of the regime, really, but seemed to fall apart when the wall came down and what he thought he wanted actually came to fruition. Then there's his mother, Anne, who had been a journalist in the DDR, very aware of the limitations, what she could and couldn't write, write down to words she was, wasn't allowed to use, who was a very committed left-winger but found that difficult to reconcile with the life that she was being forced to leave and who eventually gave up journalism for that reason. And then there's the author Maxime himself, who had a DDR childhood and grew up in East Berlin, who was a young adult when the wall came down and who was able then to work as a journalist in very different circumstances from those of his mother. So it's a sweeping panorama, really, of Germany through all that time. But it's the details that stick in your mind and make you understand just a little bit more about what it was like to be German at particular points in the history of the last century. For example, Maxim Leo, writing about his childhood, remembers the games that they used to enjoy playing, the favourite being called Escape to the West, He needed four people at least. Three children would line up by the climbing frame, and they were the border guards. And then the fourth one had to try and get past them and climb the frame. And if they managed to get to the top, they could shout out in triumph, "West!" and they were the winner. And immediately following that comes a passage describing a school trip to the Brandenburg Gate, at which, even as an eight-year-old, it was problematic. He knew he was being told certain things that possibly weren't true. And it's a good illustration of the dilemmas of living in such a regime. So, quote, Once we went to the Brandenburg Gate with our class. I was eight years old. The teacher wanted to show us the anti-fascist protection rampart. While our teacher was talking about the socialist fight for freedom, we wondered about the easiest way of getting over there. With a crane, somebody suggested, or with a glider, said somebody else. The next day, we write a local geography essay on the subject of why the state border must be protected. Anne, that's his mother, has kept my local geography exercise file from the third class of primary school. I have in front of me the lined page with the pre-printed question. I wrote, because otherwise everybody would run away and because there are fascists over there. I only got a three for it. The correct answer is written next to it in red ink, so that freedom is secured. A little later he goes on to describe, sum up really, the education he received in an East German school, which seemed to consist mainly of filling in tables of facts and then learning them and regurgitating them in tests. Quote, In later school years, there were many more tables, the three determining factors of a revolutionary situation, ten reasons for the superiority of socialism, the five most important points of the first SED party programme. Listless teachers wrote the tables on the board, Listless pupils wrote them in their notebooks. Listless parents signed off the classwork. That was socialism as it reached me. Phrases in table form. So again, a mix of fact and memory, and an interesting dose of interpretation as you go along. Very much another book I would recommend. So then, that brings me to the end of today's episode. I hope I've given you some food for thought, some ideas about things to read if you want to deepen your understanding of Berlin, possibly before a visit, possibly just anyway. I'll list the four books in the show notes so that you can find them should you wish to do so. And I must mention too a couple of very useful anthologies which are Berlin-based, so in both cases a whole book full of useful extracts by writers who visited the city. There is Berlin, a literary guide for travellers by Paul Sullivan and Marcel Kruger, described thus on the book jacket. Quote, spanning more than 200 years of local life and literature, it features German authors as diverse as Goethe, Marx, Hermann Hesse and Joseph Roth, and a kaleidoscope of famous international names such as Mark Twain, Philip Hensher, Walter Benjamin and Christopher Isherwood. It's also a singular guide to some of the best sights, most vibrant neighbourhoods and best-kept local secrets that this unique city has to offer. And secondly, one of the excellent City Lit series, this one, of course, City Lit Berlin, more than 60 writers featured who will help you to, quote, experience the haunting and exciting city of Berlin as never before in the company of its most fascinating writers. The blurb then goes on to explain that included in the book are Christopher Isherwood taking us to the cabaret, David Bowie cycling through Berlin, and John Simpson watching the wall come down. And here's the travel writer, Mike Gerrard, on the City Lit series in general, something with which I absolutely agree. Quote, city Lit books are a new kind of travel guide, showing a city through the eyes of writers new and old. They look set to be one of the most refreshing travel series for a long time. Hear, hear. If it's the history and the culture of a place that interests you as much as actually seeing the sights, then the relevant City Lit guide is, I would suggest, a must-take with you. In this case, of course, City Lit Berlin, edited by Heather Rays. Again, the details will be in the notes. And next time then, the very last episode in the Berlin series, I'm going to take a look at fiction set in Berlin. There's loads of that, as you probably already know, and I'm going to pick out just half a dozen or so books which I'd recommend and tell you why. So, I hope you'll join me for that, and then after that, we'll be moving on to a new phase, a new city, in a general spirit of onward and upward. Do take a look at the website if you have a moment. I'm doing a blog post to go with every episode currently, so previous series are not all fully done yet, but for Berlin there will be a blog post to go with this episode and every other episode we've had, summarising the content, listing all the reading ideas, pictures and whatnot, generally a useful set of things, I hope. Anyway, do have a look if you get a moment. For now, though, thank you very much again for listening, vielen Dank fürs Zuhören, and until next time, goodbye. Bis zum nächsten Mal, auf Wiederhören.